Welcome in to News and Views with Tom Lamprecht. The stories you've heard and the ones you need to hear. Russia has used more than a thousand missiles against peaceful Ukrainian cities. The Ukrainians actually win. Can you provide a definition for the word woman? Can I provide a definition? Mm-hmm. No, I can't. You can't? And now is a time when things are shifting. There's going to be a new world order out there, and we've got to lead it. Your life, your values, your voice. This is News and Views with Tom Lamprecht on Talk 96.3 and 103.7. All right, welcome in. It is News and Views, and uh, got a good program lined up for you. We're going to be uh, talking to Thomas Jipping, who's a senior legal fellow at the Edwin Meese Center for Legal and Judicial Studies, which is a part of the Heritage Foundation. Uh, he is probably the the best person to talk to concerning this uh, SCOTUS hearing that's going on as we speak. Uh, lots of things to talk about before we get to that. Former uh, Secretary of State Madeleine Albright passed away today from cancer. Her family said we are heartbroken to announce that Madeleine Albright, the 64th U.S. Secretary of State, the first woman to hold that position, passed away earlier today. The cause was cancer. She was surrounded by family and friends. We have lost a loving mother, grandmother, sister, aunt, and friend, her family said in a statement. So uh, our condolences go out to the uh, Albright family. Uh, There's a story going around right now that all the liberal media in North Carolina is uh, gleefully reporting on. And it's a non-story. It's a nothing burger that liberal media wants to make into a something burger. The, The story surrounds a Facebook post that Mark Robinson had on his Facebook page. So it's not something the guy is ashamed of. WRAL headline, North Carolina Lieutenant Governor Mark Robinson, a hardline conservative who has spoken against abortion, said in a 2012 Facebook comment that he paid for the mother of his unborn child to have an abortion back in 1989. So we're talking about 89, 99, 2009, 2019. You know, we're talking about, what, 33 years ago. Uh, He was a young man and uh, did something he shouldn't have done and uh, did something that was even worse, and that was uh, paying for an abortion. Somehow they think that is, therefore, he has no opportunity to uh, speak against abortion. Now, I'm not winking at abortion and saying, you know, well, that, that didn't matter. But the truth of the matter is, listen, people who have abortions, fathers who paid for abortions, it w- is wrong, but it, it, doesn't, it doesn't mean that they're not forgiven. I mean, my gosh, every one of us makes horrible mistakes in life. I mean, the fact that he can come out and admit it and still say, well, let me quote him. He said, I'm not saying abortion is wrong because I said so. I say it's wrong because God says so. It's wrong when others do it, and it's wrong when I paid to do it to be done with my unborn child in 1989. So, I mean, he's not, he's not condemning others and, and, and not looking at himself and saying this was wrong. But the liberals, oh, they, I mean, how long did they have to go digging to find this? Now, listen, they probably, 
in all honesty, I, I don't know how long they had to dig, but it, it shouldn't have been too hard. All they had to do is go, go through his Facebook page, go back a few years. But, but they were – the liberal media, you know, they're going to come out in unison and they're going to say, oh, therefore, <laughs> therefore, Mike Robinson has no right to be a conservative candidate, has no right to be a conservative lieutenant governor, has no right to consider running for governor. The guy came out and said, you know what, I did this, and it was wrong. Was I disappointed when I heard that he paid for it? I, I wasn't. I didn't, it didn't, um, I mean, I'm disappointed whenever a baby dies at the hands of an abortionist and it's disappointing that Mark Robinson paid for it, but I didn't look at that and say, oh my gosh, the opinion of this guy has now drastically changed. I mean, if they think that if these liberal publications think that suddenly conservatives are going to abandon Mark Robinson, they're wrong. And again, listen, whether you're a liberal and had an abortion or a conservative and had an abortion, the condemnation is to the act of abortion. If if you were in a troubled pregnancy and you chose abortion, that's sad. And uh, it's it's sad that people make that choice. And I think it is wrong that people make that choice. But you're, you're not personally condemned. I mean, you're not going to hell because you chose abortion. But uh, keep your eye on it. News and Observer, WRAL, all the liberal publications, all the liberals, they will try to therefore say, oh, Mark Robinson has no, no place to stand, no, 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 no pulpit to preach from. Mark Robinson is very consistent. And uh, listen, he'll own this. He, he has owned it. It's not, it's not like they said, oh, they had to go to his Facebook page to discover it. It's not like he's hiding it. Well, you heard in the opening clip, and you've probably heard this throughout the day if you watch the evening news. If, if you're a news junkie, you've heard this. But I think it's important to hear this in its entirety. Now, yesterday, Katanji Brown-Jackson made a statement that really, of all the things that she has said— this one statement is the, the they disqualify her to be a Supreme Court justice. Now, unfortunately, I think she's going to be affirmed. Although I say unfortunately, if it's not her, it's going to be some other stark liberal. While not answering a series of questions from Senator Marsha Blackburn of Tennessee, Jackson took this to a new level. Blackburn asked, do you agree that schools should teach children they can choose their gender? Jackson deflected. Senator, I'm not making comments about what schools can teach. Blackburn then quoted the late Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg's majority opinion in U.S. versus Virginia. Ginsburg wrote, supposed inerrant differences are no longer accepted as a ground for race or national origin classifications. Physical differences between men and women, however, are enduring. The two sexes are not fungible. A community made up exclusively of one sex is different from a community composed of both. After finishing that quote, Blackburn asked Jackson, do you agree with Justice Ginsburg? Are there physical differences between men and women that are enduring? Jackson deflected once again, saying, "Mm, Senator, respectfully, I am not familiar with that particular quote or case, so it's hard for me to comment. Blackburn followed up on another question. 
Do you interpret Justices Ginsburg's meaning of men and women as male and female? Jackson refused to comment again, claiming that she couldn't answer because she wasn't familiar with the case. <laughs> so to you, you have to know the case, apparently, to know what a fem- female is or a male is, and you have to be particular with a le- particular le- legal case. But then it really got bizarre. This is uh, cut one. This is Senator Blackburn asking a fairly simple question to the nominee. Uh, can you provide a definition for the word woman? Can I provide a definition? Mm-hmm. No. Yeah. I can't. You can't? N- not in okay. this context. So I'm you not a biologist. The meaning of the word woman is so unclear and controversial that you can't give me a definition? Senator, in my work as a judge, what I do is I address disputes. If there's a dispute about a definition, people make arguments, and I look at the law, and I decide. So I'm not... The fact that you can't give me a straight answer about something as fundamental as what a woman is underscores the dangers of the kind of progressive education that we are hearing about. Just last week, an entire generation of young girls watched as our taxpayer-funded institutions permitted a biological man to compete and beat a biological woman in the NCAA swimming championships. What message do you think this sends to girls who aspire to compete and win in sports at the highest levels? Senator, I'm not sure what message that sends. If if you're asking me about the legal issues related to it, um, those are topics that are being hotly discussed, as you say, and could come to the court. So I'm and I think it tells our girls that their voices don't matter. I think it tells them that they're second class citizens, and parents want to have a Supreme Court justice who is committed to preserving parental autonomy and protecting our nation's children. Uh, Well said by Senator Blackburn. (laughs) Listen, I've got six grandchildren, and all but the one who's not even one yet could answer the question, can you give me a definition of a woman? Now, I mean, some of the kids would have a very elementary definition, but they all could give a definition. I'm not a biologist. Can you tell me what a definition of a woman? Hey, I'm not a biologist. What do you want me to do? Now, here's the real irony of this, though. Why was Judge Jackson nominated to the Supreme Court? Why? Because she was a black woman. (laughs) And yet she can't define what a woman is. Wow. So can you define what black is? I'm not a biologist. Uh, Blackburn later tweeted, it doesn't take a biologist to understand what a woman is. Now, you know, I, I suppose she could say, I better not give you a definition of what a woman is because... Very well, this uh, 
you know, University of Pennsylvania swim team case could come before the Supreme Court. If she had answered that and said something along those lines, uh, it would still be ridiculous, but at least she could have tied it into a court case or something. But, oh my gosh, give me a break. And the reason why I say this is the most disqualifying is if you, I mean, first of all, if you can't think on your feet very well, I mean, all these accolades that have come primarily from the left, but some in the Republican Party, I think, have been overly generous with their uh, compliments towards her. But uh, I, I haven't been oppressed. I'll be uh, very interested to hear what uh, Thomas Jipping has to say about that particular comment. Uh, there's a, a lot of interesting stuff that is coming out on this. Uh, again, unfortunately, it probably will be a situation where she will be affirmed. I mean, there are questions as to uh, whether or not any Republicans will vote for her. Susan Collins is on the committee and, uh, I, I take that back. I don't know if she's on the committee or not, but I think she would probably be one of the potential votes when it gets to the full Senate. The Daily Caller has come out reporting on a new poll. This is interesting. Now, granted, uh, the poll was released and paid for by the National Republican Congressional Committee. So some people will say, well, it's not worth looking at because it was paid for by them, but they didn't conduct the poll. Um, interesting poll, a majority of swing voters in America's most competitive districts find Democrats condescending, according to this poll. The poll was conducted in 77 battleground districts. The ma- in other words, toss-up districts. The major finding was that, Demo- that voters blame Democrats for inflation and crime, which Politico reported probably wasn't a big surprise. Seats that Biden won by an average of 5.5 points these seats that he won by 5.5 points are now led by Republicans by at least four points. That's in the period of a year and a half, a swing of nine percentage points. That's a, that goes from Biden winning to him losing uh, nine percentage points in and of itself is a landslide. In those districts, 75% of swing voters said that Democrats are out of touch and condescending. So these are the voters that say, okay, these are the voters we're going after. We know there's hard Democrats and hard Republicans, hard conservatives and hard liberals. The swing voters are those voters that sometimes they vote Republican, sometimes they vote Democrat. In those districts, 75% of the swing voters said Democrats are out of touch and condescending and spend too much money in Washington. Only 40% of voters in the key districts approved of the president translating into an overall approval rating of negative 15, 40% approve, 55% disapprove. Since February 2021, Biden's net approval rating has dropped to minus 32 amongst independent voters, 30% approve, 62% disapprove, representing a 34-point swing in just over a year. (laughs) Wow. Wow. Respondents concerned about jobs and and the economy were more likely to favor Republican candidates, the report continued. For voters who placed the cost of living as the top priority, Republicans led by 24 points. 
Battleground voters continue to hold Democrats responsible for negative impact that record high inflation, soaring crime, and the crisis along our southern border are having on their lives. Additionally, these voters overwhelmingly support Republicans who are focused on addressing these issues, according to a polling memo published by the NRCC. Roughly 75% of battleground voters are more likely to support Republican candidates who vow to lower the price of groceries and gas, according to an analysis by the Washington Examiner. 78% of the same battleground demographics will support a Republican that toughens up on cartels and drug trafficking, and 80% will support Republicans who want to advance energy innovation. So in other words, everything that you've heard about in the headlines from Joe Biden concerning inflation, concerning energy, all those things that he said, yeah, it's, you know, the, the gas thing is Putin's issue. Oh, the, you know, the inflation, that's a worldwide issue that has nothing to do with us. You know, it's all about used cars. They're not buying it. Joe, they're not buying it. They're not buying it for you, from you, and they're not buying it from Saki. They're not buying it, Joe. <laughs> and the more you lie about it, the worse it's going to get for you. Hey, we're going to take a time out. Stay with us. When we come back, we're going to be joined by Thomas Jipping of the Heritage Foundation. We'll be talking about this uh, situation up in Washington, D.C. as Katanji Brown-Jackson is going through her confirmation process. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Back to News and Views. Talk 96.3 and 103.7. All right, welcome back in. Taking a quick look at your weather forecast. Tonight, a chance of showers and thunderstorms. Uh, It's uh, been spitting a little bit outside the studio already. Chance of uh, rain 70% tonight. Rain amounts up to three quarters of an inch as possible. Wind gusts as high as 21 miles per hour. Tomorrow, showers and a possible thunderstorm, a high near 74. Looks like towards the end of the day, it'll be tapering off. But again, we could expect at least a half inch tomorrow. And uh, Friday, not bad. Mostly sunny, a little cooler, high near 68. A little breezy. Friday night, clear and a low around 46 degrees. Well, Clark is trying to get Thomas Jipping on the phone. So uh, he was scheduled to be with us at 520. He will keep uh, trying to get uh, Thomas on there and uh, look forward to talking to him. Um, NATO has condemned both Russia and China as the 30-member alliance looks to counter the growing threat of a biological and chemical or nuclear attack. Russia must stop its nuclear sable-rattling. This is dangerous. It's irresponsible, NATO Secretary General Stolenberg told reporters. Any use of nuclear weapons will fundamentally change the nature of the conflict, and Russia must understand that nuclear war uh, it should never be fought. It continued, they can never win the nuclear war. We'll talk more about that. Um, Clark has come through in the pinch. Thomas Jipping is a senior legal fellow for the Edwin Meese III Center for Legal and Judicial Studies, which is a part of the Institute for Constitutional Government at the Heritage Foundation. Tom spent 15 years on the staff of Orrin Hatch, including several years as his chief counsel on the Senate Judiciary Committee. Tom has developed a nation, nationwide reputation among both liberals and conservatives as an expert in the federal judiciary, and in particular, the appointment of federal judges. So Tom is 
the one we need to talk to about Biden's nominee to the United States Supreme Court, Katenji Brown-Jackson. Tom, welcome to News and Views. Good to have you with us. Thank you very much for having me. First of all, what's your general impression? Without me asking any leading questions, what's your general impression so far with the hearing? Well, um, you know, I did five Supreme Court confirmation hearings when I worked with Senator Hatch. And to be honest with you, in general, I'm not a big fan of them ever. <laughs> okay. Because, well, because it's it's such a small part of the overall process. And so much of it is, you know, scripted questions and evasive answers. And there, there even if there's some smoke, there's very little fire. Um, so I'm not sure how, you know, that kind of jousting really contributes to the overall process, but, um, judge Jackson is very, uh, very articulate. She's held up well during, you know, two very long days. Uh, and there've been some interesting issues that have arisen. Uh, some of which I wrote about today in the daily signal that the heritage foundation publishes, um, but I, I, I don't think people should put too many eggs in that basket. I think the, the other um, aspects of her record are just as or more important to consider, and it's a very long and, and substantive record. I'm just curious, uh, as a sidebar, what was the first hearing you were involved in? You said you well, were five. I, well, it, the, first, the first Supreme Court hearing I was involved in was actually in 1986. I was a law student working that summer for Antonin Scalia on the U.S. Court of Appeals here in Washington, the summer that he was nominated to the Supreme Court. So okay. I, I spent that summer working on his. Um, but with Senator Hatch, I worked on uh, Chief Justice Roberts, Justice Alito, uh, Sotomayor Kagan and Gorsuch, and then uh, the others— uh, were nominated after I came over here to the Heritage Foundation, and we, of course, uh, tried to make a good contribution to those processes as well. Were you involved at all with the Clarence Thomas hearing? Because that was a real fiasco. Uh, I was. Um, I worked for an organization at that time that had a, a pretty significant role in the judicial appointment process, and we had recommended Thomas for the Supreme Court. I got to know him, actually, when he was chairman of the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, and then was appointed to the same court that Judge Jackson serves on today. And we were um, very active in supporting Justice Thomas. And, you know, 30, almost 31 years later, we're very glad we did. I, hard to believe that has been 31 years. By the way, a little, uh, <laughs> my my 30 seconds of fame, Thomas, uh, my name came up in the, in the Clarence uh, Thomas hearing. I was involved in an FCC uh, battle, Lamprecht versus the FCC, and my, my case actually came up in the middle of his hearing. Uh, somebody, well, there you go. You're, yeah. You're <laughs> permanent archives of the Senate judiciary. Exactly. It doesn't get me anything, but uh, there it is. Uh, listen, it's, it's really curious. Um, you and John Malcolm wrote an article entitled What Senators Must Ask Supreme Court uh, Nominee Katanji Brown-Jackson About Her Record and judicial ju- judicial philosophy, and then an article came out, and John was quoted saying, "She said that she doesn't have a judicial philosophy per se." 
I find that very surprising for somebody who went to Harvard Law School, checked, uh, clerked for three federal judges, including a justice, and had been a sitting judge at the time for eight years. How is it possible, Tom, for any judge at any level not to have a judicial philosophy? I, I think it begins with how you define or what you understand judicial philosophy to mean. Um, she did say that last year uh, in questions after her Court of Appeals nomination hearing. Um, I, I think at that time she emphasized that she was a lower court judge, uh, which means that she was bound by higher court precedents. And in that she was correct. That still doesn't mean that a, you know, a judge doesn't have a judicial philosophy. That term, which is it's kind of a fancy term for how to, what does a judge think her job is and how she ought to do it is really what it comes down to. Um, she's not constrained that way now. She's been nominated to the Supreme Court, so she doesn't have any higher court precedents to follow. And uh, judicial philosophy was a big issue in the, in the hearing this week. I think the surprising thing was the way she describes it now. Uh, she, she almost sounds like Justice Scalia back when I attended his confirmation hearing. Uh, she sounded like a conservative, you know, originalist <laughs> justice. Uh, it was clear to me uh, she, she and her coaches and, and handlers uh, framed her testimony using uh, almost too many buzzwords and cliches that meant to resonate with conservatives. But the piece that I published today on the Daily Signal, that's at heritage.org, uh, looks specifically at that issue that, you know, is that believable? What else do we know about her judicial philosophy? And therefore, how should we take what she said this week? I think we ought to take it with a pound of salt. The um, uh, judicial philosophy, and yet she cannot come out and give Marsha Blackburn a definition of what a woman is, to me, that said a lot about her judicial philosophy. I mean, you're almost getting more out of her non-answers than her answers. Well, that that could be, except, you know, when it comes to interpreting, you know, silence, if you will, people usually find what they think they want to look for. Um, I, I, I'm not sure that I agree with you about that particular question. I'm not, I think I know what, you know, Senator Blackburn was getting at. Uh, but I think Judge Jackson could have responded in a more uh, useful way than just saying, well, I'm not a biologist. Uh, but I don't think that that has to do, judicial philosophy has to do with, you know, how much power does a judge think she has and how should she go about approaching her task when deciding cases, interpreting and applying the law. Um I, to me, and I, this is no criticism of Senator Blackburn, who I respect greatly, uh, those kinds of exchanges are, are what make confirmation hearings somewhat less useful, I think, than they could be, to be honest with you. What, what line of questioning have you most admired? I mean, you had Josh Hawley, who was asking and, and really focusing on the fact that uh, I, I, these are my words, not his, but that she is soft on uh, a crime. The sentencing was always the minimal or and, and when it could have been up to, you know, 120 months for child pornography. She was handing out 60 months. 
it w- is is was that effective? What which line of questioning has been most effective by the Republicans? Well, I, I to be honest with you, it, it was almost uh, something that you could uh, attribute to Chairman Dick Durbin. I mean, he clearly anticipated that Republicans were going to want to talk about our judicial philosophy. And he was the one who asked the question first. As chairman, he gets to begin the questions, and he put that issue right on the table, which allowed her to uh, describe very concretely what she says her methodology is in, in, in interpreting the Constitution. She says she looks for the original public meaning of the Constitution. She wants to know what the words meant for the people who put them there. Well, uh, that provided a great deal of discussion, with, particularly with Republican senators, about just what she meant by that and how committed she is to it and how she understands it. So, you know, I don't want to give Chairman Durbin too much credit, but he put that issue on the table right at the top, and it is a critical issue, and it allowed uh, senators to pursue that. She Senator Grassley asked her about the use of foreign law in interpreting the Constitution, uh, and she addressed that issue very similarly to what I've heard Justice Scalia do in the past. That is, uh, foreign law is not to be used to actually interpret the Constitution, and it's only relevant in very rare cases, for example, where a treaty might be involved. She took a very narrow view of that. That's not the typical liberal position. And so I think it's, you know, it's worth asking, would... Joe Biden nominate someone who was a committed originalist. 1987, he opposed Robert Bork for that very reason. Uh, And that discussion, I thought, was a good opportunity to explore that, to get on the record what she had to say, so we can compare it to the rest of her record. Yet, will it make any difference when she gets to the Supreme Court? I mean, it would be great if she was originalist, but at the same time, she came out in her Senate Judiciary Questionnaire, and she's, she was talking about sentencing here. And she says, you know, when I, when I uh, teach my students about sentencing, uh, we bring in all a myriad of, of types of law, criminal law and, of course, administrative law, constitutional law, law. And in this list of things she gave, in the middle of it was critical race theory. Uh, th- that that really sounds like a, a different philosophy. And I know they're two different questions, but that sounds like a much different uh, that that answer on sentencing as compared to, oh, I want to be an originalist when it comes to the Constitution, I, I just don't see those two melding together. Well, well they aren't necessarily separate. A, an originalist is somebody who believes you you find the meaning of the Constitution right. within, within the Constitution. And the concern about questions like critical race theory or her uh, child pornography sentencing was whether she would instead rely on personal views to drive her judging, rather than uh, objective sources of law like the original meaning of the Constitution. I think that's a very valid uh, and important question to ask, and we need to know the answer, because uh, a judge who, uh, where there's a concern that, that those personal views might drive her judging, I don't think we can take the risk of putting someone like that on the Supreme Court. We're talking to Thomas Jipping of the Heritage Foundation concerning the uh, confirmation process of uh, Joe Biden's Supreme Court nominee, Katanji Brown-Jackson. A, a couple of questions as, as we wrap this up, Tom. Um, 
A, is she going to be confirmed? Uh, yes. Uh, everyone's known that from the beginning. Um, only three Republicans voted against her last year for the Court of Appeals, Lindsey Graham, Susan Collins, and Lisa Murkowski. So the only open question is whether uh, any of them will vote against her now. Um, so it'll be at least 50-50 plus Kamala Harris breaking the tie up to, you know, maybe 53-47, but she will be confirmed. So uh, you don't see any, when it gets to the full Senate, you don't see any Democrats, you don't see a Joe Manchin uh, no. voting against her? No. And, and But you think it is possible that you might have two or three Republicans voting for her? Well, I'm, I'm only going by that they did vote for her last year, although Joe Biden, when he was a senator, was a, a big one for saying, just because I support you for the Court of Appeals doesn't mean I'll support you for the Supreme Court, and he certainly didn't in Clarence Thomas's case. Um, uh, and those three are, when it comes to votes on confirming Biden judges, they, they have the, uh, the least conservative record. So, you know, those are the ones who are in play, so to speak, where we, we really don't know for sure. Um, I suspect, given comments by Lindsey Graham during the hearing, and he clearly preferred <clears throat> a different candidate who was being considered for this nomination, I think he may end up voting against her. Uh, so it'll be very close, and it may well be the closest confirmation in American history. Uh, that is a, a result that I think um, President Biden has to blame himself for. He chose someone who had no chance of getting any uh, consensus behind her in a bipartisan way. When you consider, now we had talked about the, the Marshall Blackburn uh, question, and you said, the, you know, that sort of clouds the whole confirmation process. But when it comes to the average conservative sitting at home who's already frustrated with the Democrat Party, I mean, I just had a, uh, a poll I read earlier, and boy, you know, amongst independents, the Democrats are really in trouble. And amongst the swing voters, they're really in trouble. But that question, which made the news, I mean, it made all the headlines, and, and, and of all the things that have come out of the hearing, that's what they have heard. Politically speaking, I, I, do you think this is going to – I just don't see how it could possibly help the Democrats when that kind of stuff comes out. I just – I see the average voter sitting at home rolling their eyes. Well, they, they, they may be doing that, but, you know, in about two hours, they'll be thinking about something else. <laughs> the, the judiciary and even the Supreme Court is generally not an issue that has great resonance, certainly in the midterm congressional elections. And the fact that this process will be over within a couple of weeks and the transition from Bot from Breyer <clears throat> to Jackson at the end of the Supreme Court's term in June will be very quiet. Uh, you know, the country will be thinking about other issues. I think people, most people are much more concerned with we can't afford gasoline than right. whoever the nominee is. Yeah, but I, I just don't see how it can – it's not going to help the Democrats in any way. Um, and as you look at the court, I mean, as, as I glance at it, at least in the near term, and I would say in the near term, I would say the next three years, I, I don't see do, – do you see this making any difference on the, the outcome of votes on the Supreme Court? No. Like, Justice Breyer, I think, may have acquired somewhat of a moderate – 
reputation or something, like he's not a complete lunatic. But he was a very reliable, liberal, activist justice on every issue that matters. Uh, And Justice Jackson uh, will be the same. So this will not change the compass or the the balance of the Supreme Court. It will still be a five to four or six to three uh, moderate to conservative court, perhaps. Um, But swapping uh, Katanji Brown Jackson for Stephen Breyer isn't going to make any difference. Very good. Thomas Jipping of the Heritage Foundation. You can read more of Thomas's work uh, on the Daily Signal, which is the publication of the Heritage, and you can find more about him at heritage.org. Thank you, sir. Appreciate your insights. Glad to be with you. Thank you. You bet. Stay with us. More news and views coming up. This is your Drive at Five, an ENC with Tom Lamprecht. Welcome back to News and Views on Talk 96.3 and 103.7. Welcome back in. When uh, Thomas Jipping called in, we were talking about uh, NATO condemning both uh, Russia and China as the 30-member alliance um, gets together. Joe Biden is uh, on his way. And uh, the again, the NATO Secretary General Stolenberg has come out and told reporters that any use of nuclear weapons will fundamentally change the nature of the conflict. Nuclear war should never be fought, and Russia must understand that. They can never win a nuclear war. They can do a lot of damage with it, though, in the meantime. And uh, they're also putting warnings out to China, and they're putting warnings out against chemical and biological attacks. Now, what's interesting is, Earlier today, Moscow accused Washington and Kiev of plotting to use chemical weapons against Russian forces. Now, that's a preamble that will uh, probably lead up to the possibility of them using chemical and biological weapons. But they, uh, NATO came out pretty strongly, and uh, they were talking as if if you do this, we're going to ramp things up. Now, how can they ramp things up any more than they are? Uh, now, it'd be nice if they got the MiG jets, I suppose, Ukrainians. But they're giving them all kinds of weaponry. And are there any more sanctions, effective sanctions, that they can do that they haven't already done? So what does that mean if they're going to ramp things up? Security of officials have increasingly warned that China may look to provide material support to Russia a move Biden warned against during his call with Chinese President Xi Jinping last week. Um, If that's what they talked about, then why isn't the transcript of the conversation being released? Just asking. They they talked for two hours, and we haven't, uh, uh, unless something came out late this afternoon, nothing has been said. By the way, U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken is officially calling the actions by certain members of Russia's forces in Ukraine war crimes. Blinken's comments came nearly after a week after himself and President Biden said they personally believe that Russian Vladimir Putin is a war criminal. Today I can announce that based on information currently available, the U.S. government assesses that members of the Russian forces have committed war crimes against Ukraine. This from uh, Blinken. Uh, Blinken says that Russia is committing war crimes in Ukraine. 
So more of the same coming out of Ukraine, and Ukraine continues to uh, hold the line even though their entire nation is uh, slowly being destroyed. The Daily Wire, this is, uh, this is crisp. The Daily Wire is reporting that Nicole Hannah-Jones, a New York Times reporter and creator of the fictitious 1619 Project, riled up social media on Monday when she tweeted that, you ready for this? Tipping is a legacy of slavery. Tipping is a legacy of slavery, and it's not optional. Then it should, shouldn't be a tip, but simply included in the bill, Hannah Jones wrote. Have you ever stopped to think why we tip? Like why tipping is a practice in the U.S. and almost nowhere else? Well, first of all, it's done all over the world. Hannah Jones, 45, created the 1619 Project, which intends to reframe American history, which is what all liberals do, by placing the consequences of slavery at the center of our national narrative. She drew mockery from historian Phil Magnus, a longtime gadfly to Hannah Jones. Wait, what, Magnus? Author of a rival project called the 1619 Project, a critique. He wrote on Twitter, Magnus noted that tipping is not isolated just the United States, posting that a good housekeeping guide to how to tip in other countries. Magnus also cited a scene from William Shakespeare's play The Twelfth Night that references tipping. It doesn't matter, though. Hannah Jones can say whatever she wants to say, and it, it, it doesn't matter. The libs will fawn all over her. It doesn't matter whether it's truth or fictitious. She doesn't care, and neither do any of the liberal publications out there. They will... Uh, Say, hey, well, that sounds great. Yeah. Rewrite history. We'll oblige you. Listen, the only thing I can say about tipping is my three daughters, well, at least my older two, all through college, they were waitresses in restaurants. And they wouldn't have traded it for the world because what they made in tips was astronomically more than they would have had at an hourly job. I mean, it wasn't even close. I mean, they'd, they'd come home some nights and they'd have this big grin on their face because they had uh, made in a six-hour shift like a couple of hundred bucks. I mean, and we're talking about 20 years ago. Well, can't make it up. Hey, we got to take another time out. Stay with us. More news and views right around the corner. Back to the show that really makes you think. He is a genius. He's all-powerful. He brought a kind of heat. He could be the best. Just don't hurt yourself, okay? More news and views on Talk 96.3 and 103.7. We can go back uh, a few years and remember the Brett Kavanaugh hearing and uh, how they literally wanted to destroy Brett Kavanaugh. By the way, numerous lefties are going back on social media and still repeating the lines that um, Ford was uh, talking about that she totally disproved. Remember her, her own dad, her own dad, Christine Blasey Ford's dad came out and said, it's all fictitious. Her friends, her friends from high school said it was all fictitious. Nothing panned out. And yet there were people out there today talking about how, oh, it was all fact. It was all fact. And 
they are now looking at how the Republicans are dealing with Katanji Brown-Jackson. And one MSNBC commentator, Eli Mistel, who is the National Justice Correspondent, whatever that is, he is now accusing Josh Hawley, the senator from Missouri, of trying to kill Katanji Brown-Jackson. His weapon, a question about her prior legal positions. And as Tom Jipping just said, <laughs> it was Dick Durbin that brought it up. Hawley and others have criticized the record of Judge Jackson as soft on crime, including child pornography. He noted that she recommended eliminating the five-year minimum sentence for child pornography. Holly was criticized for conflating all sexual offenders with the same issue on the sentencing of child pornography defendants. However, Jackson can easily address any such generalization in her own testimony. So Mistel's response to this was that Josh Holly was trying to get Judge Jackson killed. Can't make it up. Interesting, um, Town Hall is reporting that the CDC came out today and said, oops, we had a coding error. And what happened? Yeah, that's what we'd like to know. We've massively overcounted COVID deaths amongst children. I'm not kidding. I mean, when you say massive, I mean, you're talking about 27%. All-time uh, children deaths from COVID reported on the CDC's uh, control and prevention COVID data tracker dropped, I said 27, 24% after the age. But that's one out of four. I mean, that's significant. After the agency resolved a coding logic error, basically they said, it was, our, our bad, our bad. We were counting a bunch of deaths that had nothing to do with COVID. Now, they're saying in actual numbers, they had reported originally there was 1,755 all-time deaths of children from infant to 17 years old. Um, after they redid the numbers, they changed them to 1,339, which is a difference of 24%. But even at that, it wasn't they died of covid they died with COVID. So if a child had tested positive for COVID and uh, had, you know, died in a drowning accident or something, that, that still counted as a COVID death. But um, stop and think about all these kids that were in all these masks for all that length of time. Is it, in, you know, and just to say, oops, oh, yeah, we made a mistake. I mean, you're talking about shutting down the country, masking kids across the nation. I mean, children, you know, it's sad when a child ever dies of anything. But my goodness, children die of all kinds of things in much greater numbers, in much, much greater numbers. I mean, the suicide alone is a greater number than the number of children who have died of COVID at 1,300. Yet, nobody will say anything. I mean, the main, there, will be no, there, will, there will be no mainstream media investigative reporting of this. Or, invest, yeah, I mean, no investigation at all. 
Hey, our thanks to uh, Thomas Chipping of the Heritage Foundation. Thank you for joining us. We'll do it again tomorrow. Play a little political trivia. We'll see you then. Bye-bye, everybody. All right, all right, all right.